Hi guys, I'm Laura. And I'm Vanessa. And welcome to the 105th episode of the Top on the Wrist podcast. And the start of season five. Woo! Season five! Yep, triple digits, season five. We're just experienced podcasters now. <laughs> oh, and you would think it'd get easier season after season, <laughs> but it doesn't. <laughs> like it just, it's, ah. It's still fun, though. It is. It is. Um, but we did take a lengthy break uh, before season five. Uh, and so we figured before we tell you kind of what this season is going to be and what we're going to do, we would talk a little bit about some of the fun things that we did, did during our break. Uh, so one of the biggest things that Laura and I did together was we went to Crime Con, uh, which Laura did last year by herself, but this was my first year going and it was in Vegas. Uh, and we got to meet a lot of true crime podcasters, uh, some friends of ours, shout out to hashtag history, who we finally got to meet in person. And it was awesome. I mean, very informative, super cool. Did you have any favorite panels? I guess maybe we should say what oh. CrimeCon is for people who don't know. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> CrimeCon is not a place for meeting serial killers, as one of my friends thought it was. Um, CrimeCon, that's literally what someone asked me. But CrimeCon is this amazing true crime fan convention. um, And it's a weekend full of discussions and workshops and panels, all with all different genres of true crime. Uh, and we went to some really great panels. I think my favorite, it's so hard. Uh, I guess I'm going to say the one on the Long Island serial killer because I'm still super fascinated by that. Mm-hmm. And so there was a panel one day. It was called, I think, Unraveled. It was hosted by Billy Jensen and Alexis Linkletter, who do a podcast all about the Long Island serial killer but I just like learning more about that case because it's still unsolved. So mm-hmm. it fascinates me. Yeah, I did really like that one a lot. I really liked the um, the staircase one. I don't remember what the panel was called, but the lawyer uh, that represented Michael Peterson was there. Um, I thought that was super interesting. There was a panel about the thing about Pam, which I also really found interesting. And I hadn't watched the show yet, uh, so I'm going to have to go back and watch it. Um, but there was a lot, Henry Lee. Yeah. We met some pretty famous, like forensic pathologists and Mm -hmm. like the guy who, you know, did the JFK autopsy after his assassination. And it's just a great weekend. If you're into true crime, uh, highly recommend. Yeah. Paul Holes, of course, lots of people well known in the true crime community. Yeah. And something really cool that we did while we were in Vegas was we went to a distillery kind of just on a whim. Like we saw it and we're like, yeah, let's do this. And it was called Lost Spirits Distillery, I believe. Correct. And we had no idea what we were signing up for other than it being a distillery tour. But it was so much more than that. So we went in and it is a distillery tour slash tasting slash show. Mm-hmm. 
there was like burlesque shows, um, like a snake dancer, acrobatics, tango, lots of really cool performances. Um, and some of them were like during a designated showtime, and then some performers you just kind of saw randomly doing their thing. Uh, and it was probably the coolest distillery I've ever been to in my life. Yeah, highly recommend Lost Beers Distillery in Vegas. Um, were there were also like themed rooms? Yeah, it, I we can't really explain it. It's yeah, just have to experience, but would definitely recommend doing I would 100% do it again if I went to Vegas again so definitely add it to your Vegas list yeah we'll maybe share like a story about it and maybe save it as like one of our our reels that we could save at the top um because there are some some cool pictures that we took uh in some of the rooms there's like one with swinging lanterns that's supposed to be like underwater Very cool. Highly recommend. Yeah. But now here we are back home, kind of. We're actually recording remotely because I'm in Florida and Laura is home in New York. Um, And we're ready for season five to start. Yeah. Season five. We've got a whole new vibe. Mm -hmm. We are going around the world for season five. So instead of just staying here in North America, which I'd say 90% of our stories from seasons one through four, we're here in North America. Um, Each week during season five, we are getting a random country from our friends. Mm -hmm. And then Vanessa and I are researching them and sharing what we find with all of you who are listening a different country every week. Yes. And we, like Laura said, we're getting these from our friends. We're just like randomly texting people and saying, give me a random country. And we've actually been like pretty surprised by the countries we've gotten back. They're not just like, you know, I would probably just go with like a European country like France or, you know, England. Um, But our friends. Our friends are far more creative. Yes. (laughs) And so we've been getting some really interesting countries. And our first one is actually Brazil, which is a huge country. Yeah. But, and even though it is such a huge country, if you told me to list 10 countries off, it's not one that I would list. Yeah. It like wouldn't immediately come to mind, but fascinating country, beautiful country. I've never been there, but I would love to go. Um, And that we want to shout out our friend Lee, who gave us the, the suggestion for Brazil. Uh, our first one, we had to we had to ask our number one fan. Thanks, Lee. <laughs> and so this week we are going to be sharing two really great stories uh, from Brazil. We're going to be posting pictures, as we said, from things during our hiatus that we did, as well as pictures from our stories this week. So make sure you're following us on social media. We're on Instagram and Twitter at a tap on the wrist. And you can email us with story ideas or with a country uh, that we could use for one of our weeks at tapontheristpodcast at gmail.com. I have to be honest. <laughs> the alcohol that I researched for today's episode is one that I like really had never heard of, which is weird because I've definitely consumed it before. Oh, 
Okay, so I know mm-hmm. what alcohol you're going to talk about because it's like the like only thing that was coming up when I googled um, Brazil. Brazil, and so you had let me know that you were doing it, so I wouldn't do it. I'm very curious if you said you've definitely had it before. Yes, but so we're going to tell anything about it. Okay, I just saw the name. Um, yeah, and so even though I've consumed it before, I didn't know a lot about the history of it. Or about really any of the drinking history in Brazil, which I think is part of the most exciting part of all of season five, is Uh going to be learning about traditions and cultures and history of all these other countries. Sure. Um, So, anyway, so with all that, uh, if you ask me what I know about Brazil, to be honest, it's not a whole lot. Right. Uh, I know they recently held the Olympics. Uh Uh-huh. I know that Christ the Redeemer is there. Yeah. Um, giant Amazon forest. They speak Portuguese. Carnival, right? Yeah, Carnival is there. Uh, and if you've ever been to a Brazilian steakhouse, you've probably had a Caparina cocktail, which okay. is how I know I've had cachaça, which is the alcohol I'm going to tell you about today. Okay. Have you ever had a Caparina? I don't know. Okay. I have been to a Brazilian steakhouse, so probable. So, and again, while I know I've consumed Caparina cocktails, if you ask me what's in it, probably couldn't tell you. Well, now I can because I researched (laughs) it. But up until we were doing research for this story, I couldn't. And it is so similar to a very famous cocktail here in North America that... It's kind of embarrassing that we don't know more about it here in North America. It's basically a Brazilian mojito. Oh. Yes. So it is limes and sugar muddled in the bottom of the class. Uh, Class. (laughs) Bottom of the glass. Already thinking about going back to school. Yeah. (laughs) And then you fill the glass with ice and then you add in the cachaça, which a mojito would be to add in the rum. Right. So, in a lot of Brazilian steakhouses, this is what they serve. It is, like, the drink of Brazil. And so, that part has kind of trickled over to North America, but not the liquor itself, cachaça. Like, they use it to make the cocktail, but, like, the knowledge of it and the history behind it, we're kind of ignorant to and and don't really know what they're putting in our cocktails, I think. Um, But cachaça... Which, when you look at it, does not look like that's how you'd say it. It's spelled C-A-C-H-A-C-A. It is a fermented distilled spirit made from sugarcane juice. And it's like original origins are unknown, but the references in Brazil date back to the 16th century. So likely is it's even older than that. Mm -hmm. But that's when it's first acknowledged in like print and recipes. So it's, is it, like, similar to a rum that you would use in a mojito? I'm, I'm going to talk about why we often interchange them here in North okay. America. But um, it, it's, it's, it's similar. Own, it's it is its own liquor. liquor. Yeah. Uh, okay, so for the longest time, cachaça has had the misfortune of being confused with rum. And for a while, many people even just call it Brazilian rum. Okay. Like, when they order a cocktail here. Right. Um and a lot of people think that when they're ordering a caparina, they're 
getting it with rum. Mm -hmm. But if a bar is serving it with regular rum, they're just serving you a mojito (laughs) without a caparina. So the spirits are both distilled from sugarcane, but the difference is that cachaça is made and brewed with the actual sugarcane liquid itself, and it has a more floral and, um, like, herby taste at the end, whereas rum is, after they've taken out all the sugar and made processed sugar, they use the molasses to distill rum. Okay. So it is made from sugarcane, and it is distilled and fermented, but one is using the raw sugarcane juice, mm-hmm. so it has that more natural flavor, and that's cachaça, and then rum almost is flavorless because, like, that sugar is pulled out first, and it's the molasses. So that's the main difference between them. Okay. However, much like champagne is to France or bourbon is to Kentucky, cachaça can only be made in Brazil. Okay. Uh, And due to how large Brazil is and the many different regions and weather origins and the way the sugar cane grows, it can have slightly different tastes the way grapes would Mm -hmm. in France, producing different versions and varieties. Okay. Um, And so... If you go to Brazil, I there are thousands of varieties of cachaça, uh-huh. apparently. <laughs> I like I can't tell you the difference between them. I still don't even know, but like it is as you said when you researched, it is the main drink in Brazil. It's actually the national drink of the country and it is consumed everywhere. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. If you Google Brazil alcohol, that's all you're going to see. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why I was like, someone has to tell this story. Like, one of us has to do it. And yeah. I am actually going to, like, a specific event in history in a little bit. But I just wanted people to, like, understand what it what is. It is. Yeah. Uh, another thing that can alter the flavor or varieties of cachaça is it's um, fermented in casks. So depending on the type of wood that is used in the cask... That can change it, and that is more similar to the way we distill whiskey or bourbon. Uh, so there's just, it is its own liquor, mm-hmm. and it's not rum, and it's not whiskey, and it's not, it's it's cachaça. Right. And we should know more about it. Like, I don't know why yeah. we don't. Uh, anyways. I also learned while researching that Brazil has always been a huge producer of sugar cane, And according to BrazilianFarmers.com, Brazil is the world's top producer and exporter of sugar cane. It supplies 50% of the world's sugar. Did not know that. Did not know that either. I know. And so with that, it has always been kind of the leading trade in that country. It's Mm -hmm. always held a prominent part of its history. So in the year 1500, when... Portugal colonizes Brazil. They're the first to kind of land there and say, this is our land. Of course, there were indigenous people living on the land. But Portugal, at the time, is one of the the biggest navigating countries of the world. Explorers are finding places all over. Mm -hmm. So they get to Brazil and they discover that sugarcane grows very, very well in this country. And it very quickly helps to build the colonies in Brazil is putting up these plantations and growing sugarcane and exporting it in the trade market. 
Uh, and unlike many South American countries, which were colonized by Spain mm-hmm. and went on to speak Spanish and be led by the Spanish crown, in Brazil they speak Portuguese, and it had a completely different economic growth being led by the Portugal royal family and the Portugal crown. And I cannot sit here and discuss 400 years of Portuguese history or Brazilian history led by the Portuguese or how that separation happened and Brazil became its own country. But when it is founded, Portugal does run the show in Brazil and that's going to be important for the event I'm going to talk about in a few minutes. And so sugarcane grows in popularity among the both the colonists in Brazil as well as those back home in Portugal. Mm-hmm. And it's so popular because it is so refreshing and can be used in so many ways. And a lot of times uh, these sugarcane plantations, which were being run on slave labor... Uh, the the plantation owners would save the fresh sugarcane juice for themselves and also to give to their slaves and their livestock because they kept them energized because of the sugar. Right. Um, it was refreshing, and they just had an abundant source of it. Mm-hmm. And what they learned is that if this like sweet, fresh sugarcane juice was left out naturally, it would ferment and slightly evaporate, becoming the alcohol that Brazilians love and know as cachaça. And so that's, they don't know the real origin or the first place to do it, but that's kind of the story is that it happens somewhat naturally on these slave plantations. Um, And everyone drank it. It wasn't just a drink for the rich or a drink for the poor. Like everyone drank cachaça and It was just, it hasn't changed much in 400 years. I would, I like, would love to know, like, the first person that, like, drank it and was like, oh, this makes me feel nice. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't think it's the first alcohol ever. So they probably had it and they were like, oh, wait. This turned into alcohol. Yeah. Like, rum had been along before that and whiskey and vodka. So, it's not the first distilled Scary, alcohol. Yeah. It was just a new a new one. Uh, however, even though cachaça is a favorite of those back home in Portugal, the Portuguese are famous for their own spirit, uh, mainly port wines and grape brandies. Mm-hmm. And so with this new colony they're developing, that is what they're hoping. They're hoping that their wines and brandies will become popular in South America and kind of blow up that trade potential. Mm -hmm. So the Portuguese were bringing their port wines and brandies to Brazil and trying to sell it. But the colonists in Brazil were like, well, we can make our own cachaça. We don't, we don't need your wine or your brandy. And so it becomes this kind of fight for really over money and like trying to get, port wines and brandies more popular in South America that the Portuguese were like, we need to set some laws on this cachaça production as you do. Of course, because it's always about money. Right. 
So, and the, the Brazilians weren't at this point, because they do eventually fight for independence, become their own country. They weren't trying to separate themselves from Portuguese rule. They just were, like, very adamant and, like, this is our our alcohol. This is what we want to drink. And, like, Portuguese wines and brandies were not selling, were not mm-hmm. being used. And so, in an attempt to take control of the spirit world, Portugal started to set ridiculous taxes on the cachaça being sold in the colony of Brazil. Taxes. I know. Uh, and we know, based on American history that we have learned and researched and studied, and, you know, what Great Britain did to us when they were colonizing America, when you put taxes on people, it's just never going to end well. Like... People don't like paying more taxes. And the same thing happens in Brazil. The colonists do not like paying more taxes. And so what are they going to do? They're going to just start making it illegally uh, instead of... Bootleg cachaça. Yeah, bootleg cachaça. So that's basically what happens. Individual distillers begin popping up all over Brazil, creating the cachaça for their friends and family... And, you know, Portugal's pretty far away. So, like, you know, they don't have a set government in these colonies, right? Mm -hmm. There are leaders, of course, but, like, they're drinking the cachaça, too. So no one's really enforcing these rules from Portugal. Uh, They've just kind of set them in hopes to enforce them. But everyone's drinking the cachaça. No one's being taxed appropriately. Right. And... Time is going on. But in the early 1600s, Portugal decides that that needs to change. They need to, like, focus on the colony a little bit more. And they put a man named Salvador de Sá. Uh, He's a wealthy and powerful landowner who is already living in the colony. But he is given uh, pretty much the title of, like, governor Mm -hmm. of Rio. uh, Rio de Janeiro. And he is told that he must enforce the rules of the crown and, like, the taxes. That he was a real popular guy. Yeah. Uh, But this is how they're going to get their brandies and wines, so they think, (laughs) uh, into the, the hands of the colonists. And Salvador de Sa is, was quite popular and well known and so when he's first put in charge, people are like, oh, great, we've got another friend in the office. And he does for a little while allow everyone to kind of continue to distill their own cachaça uh-huh. without paying for it. But then after a few months go by, he changes his mind and he just decides that if he puts his foot down, he might earn more respect from the Portuguese crown and maybe earn, like, a bigger title or bigger role in the new colony. Power hungry. Yes. And so a more formal ban is then put on the colonists. And in 1635, Portugal declares through a royal charter that it is illegal for the Portuguese colony of Brazil to produce, distribute, or sell cachaça. Like, at all? At all. So, like, a prohibition, if you will, on cachaça. People ain't going to be happy about that. Really not going to be happy. And much like what happens when prohibition went into effect here in America, everything just goes underground. Yeah. Uh, And 
it doesn't work. Banning, once you tell someone they can't have it, they want it more. Yeah. So, I mean, for like 20 years, this ban is in effect, but cachaça is still flowing in the streets of Mm -hmm. Brazil. And... Like, there's no way to really stop it because they're not, and they're enforcing it, but, and I'm sure if you knew, like, Brazilian history, there are hundreds of stories the way we know about, like, American history stories. Right. But they're all in Portuguese. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so, but for about 20 years, people just kind of go with it. It's banned. We'll, We'll do it on the DL. However, in on November 8th of 1660, a group of wealthy landovers landovers <laughs> a group of wealthy landowners had finally like they were tired of hiding their production. They just wanted to be able to to sell their cachaça um and they were, you know, the government was preventing them from all of this revenue they could be making with their plantations. So they got together and decided they were going to revolt against the Portuguese crown. Not surprising. Correct. So they gather in front of City Hall um, and they are armed with weapons, which I'm guessing in like 1660 was lots of swords. (laughs) I don't know. I'm like thinking about it. When did... I don't know anything about weapons history. I know when guns started, but... Well, even if they were guns, they were, like, muskets. Yeah. You know, we're not... They're not... Were bayonets a thing yet? Yeah. Yeah, bayonets <laughs> were definitely a thing. So, but, like, it's it's a little different than what you would imagine today. Like, a rebel army... Yeah. ...going against City Hall with. But armed with weapons used to intimidate uh, these... And I found this quoted in an article I read. Rebel plantation owners... Uh, were able to oust Salvador de Sa from his governorship. And they actually, like, took over City Hall that day. And, like, all of a sudden, the Portuguese crown no longer had control of the city of Rio de Janeiro. Yeah. And it, like, happened very quickly. Like, because it, it came out of almost nowhere. Like, there wasn't, like, a giant fight for weeks or months. It was, like, a group of people had been planning it undercover. They, like, went in with their weapons, took over. Mm-hmm. Um, and I it probably helped that Salvador de Sal was not in Rio that day. He was actually, like, on a trip to another part of the Brazilian colony okay. um, in Sa- is it Sao Paulo. Uh, but basically, they ousted all of his aides and, uh, you know, assistants and all the other people a part of his, like, cabinet Um, They took control of City Hall, and they, like, would not let him return into the city. So he just couldn't get back in to, like, control the city. Uh, They then notified the Portuguese crown of their ongoing allegiance, and that they said that Salvador de Sal was not acting in the interest of the colonists, and that he would no longer have control of this colony. And How long did it take them to get that message to Portugal, though? I it I, maybe a few months because this actual takeover only lasted for a few months. Ah. So I'm guessing by the time the boat got there and Portugal responded, then there was you know, because what happens is in September of 1661. So 
10 months later. Yeah. Uh, Salvador de Shaw shows up in Rio with his own set of armed forces provided by the Portuguese crown. And he's able to recapture the capital. Okay. Pretty quickly. Uh, officially ending the Cachaça revolt or uprising as it is called in history. Uh, and the crown takes back control of Rio. However, they, the plantation owners were successful in their mission. Portugal realizes how important Cachaça is mm. to this colony. Um, they end the ban on the Cachaça and it is now allowed to be produced and sold again. Of course, there are still heavy taxes on it, but at least it's no longer prohibited. Right. Uh, and that was like a win in the in the eyes of the plantation owners. Yeah. Um, and while there's lots more history in 400 years of cachaça drinking, but like that's really the first time that in that colony, like alcohol had played such a big part of its history because it was so right. such a new colony. Uh, and today, cachaça is actually one of the leading spirits around the world. It's like the fifth most drunken spirit in the world, even so though America that, yeah. hasn't quite caught on. Yeah. It's so weird. I know. Very strange. Um, can't wait to go back to a Brazilian steakhouse and have some. I know. It's very weird that we actually have that on our calendar. Yes, we do. So... We'll report back when we when we try it. Well, when I try it, at maybe. Because I think we're going it. this weekend. Oh, yeah. We'll report back. Yes. Yeah. When this episode releases, our Brazilian steakhouse plans are for this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I used a couple different sources. Um, I used a blog called BEM Experiences, uh, and it's kind of a local blog written. Uh, about histories mm -hmm. uh, in Rio. Um, I used a website called cachaçaforgringos.com. <laughs> and it is, it was just full of lots of information. I got a lot of information from that website uh, because it was written in English for mm -hmm. people to understand. Uh, and then a little bit of Wikipedia history on Salvador de Sa as well. Okay. He's fascinating. There's a lot more to him, but I really just wanted to focus on this one uprising and revolt. Nice. That was interesting. Yeah. Okay. So my story is very different from yours. I'm ready. <laughs> All right. It's also depressing. Sorry. That's okay. I'm ready. <laughs> So on December 30th of 2019, a person in Minas Gerais in Brazil was admitted to the hospital with symptoms such as facial paralysis, blurred vision, and sensory alteration. Soon more than 40 people, 36 men and 6 women, many of whom were from the same neighborhood, started having very similar symptoms as well as some additional symptoms including nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, acute kidney failure, facial nerve paralysis, blurred vision, temporary blindness, and sensory changes. Eventually, at least 10 people would die from these symptoms, and it would later be discovered that they all suffered from diethylene glycol, or DEG, poisoning. Well, that doesn't sound good. Nope. 
It does not. It also sounded like you were a TV commercial listing all those symptoms. <laughs> <laughs> not to make light of people's deaths, but it's just you were going and I was like, I feel like I'm listening to one of those medicine ads. I know, where it's like, <laughs> is this medicine going to help me or make me worse? Yeah. Yeah. I always think that when I listen to those. So, DEG is an organic compound. It's colorless, uh, practically odorless, and it has a sweet taste. It's widely used as a solvent and found in products such as antifreeze. So, okay, were not they, for people to eat. I was going to say, were they drinking antifreeze? Nope. They mm-hmm. sure weren't. Uh, so, according to our favorite source, Wikipedia, the people source, yes. there are three stages of diethylene glycol poisoning. So, the first phase, I'm going to be again listing symptoms, so get ready. First phase is mainly gastrointestinal, so you're going to have symptoms like nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, and diarrhea, which, I mean, you could think that you caught a bug, right? Right. Like you might not necessarily know that you've Food been poisoning. poisoned. Food poisoning. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. That's Actual what I would poisoned. think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, some patients can develop early neurological symptoms like, men- like mental, altered mental status, uh, central nervous system depression coma and mild hypotension but it's much more likely that you're just gonna like feel like you have a stomach bug okay the second phase happens one to three days later when a patient develops metabolic acidosis Uh, it can cause acute kidney failure and issues with urination other symptoms could be hypertension cardiac dysrhythmia and pancreatitis The last phase will occur five to 10 days after the initial ingestion, uh, and most of the symptoms are related to neurological complications, Uh, so progressive lethargy, facial paralysis, dilated and non-reactive pupils, quadriplegia, uh, and coma leading to death. Wow. I mean, that does not sound fun. No, it is not not a pleasant way to go. No, at all. And, but like... Okay, I, I want to know more. I want to, like, how much of this do you consume? And, like, if you hit stage one, will you go through all the stages? Yeah, so it it can take a pretty small amount. Um, I don't have the exact amount on here because it's kind of disputed. There were, like, a few different things and there was a lot of science and I had to skip over some of that science because I don't understand it. <laughs> um, but there are ways to, um, to cure po- the poisoning. Okay. So if you catch it early enough... You can be cured and and reverse, and, it. and reverse it and not go through all of these stages. Okay. Um, so it can be treated with ethanol or uh, I forgot to look up how to say this. Bom, bom, Nailed it. That's not how you say it. <laughs> look it up if you want to know what uh, can be done to treat this. Um, but if it progresses far enough, like if it's past those couple initial stages, they have to do um, hemodialysis or dialysis. Um, and obviously in stage two, a lot of people can suffer from kidney failure. So even if you do recover, there's a good chance that you're going to be on dialysis for the rest of your life. Crazy. Yeah. So how did all these people get DEG poisoning? It's antifreeze party. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> uh, a task force was actually set up to investigate what, at the time, they believed was a mysterious disease. 
which I'm sure was super scary to think like some disease was going around killing people. All um, in the same neighborhood. Exactly. Uh, and it was actually the daughter of the first patient to die from the poisoning that found the root cause. Um, I believe her name was Camilla and she was a pharmacist. Um, and she contacted the relatives of people that were hospitalized with similar symptoms to her father's illness. And after like running some tests and working with doctors, they came to the conclusion that it was DEG uh, that was causing these symptoms. Uh, she brought the evidence to the police and that aided in their investigation. What it turns out these people or how these people ingested DEG is that they had all fallen ill from a contaminated batch of craft beer from a small upscale brewery called Cervejaria Thacker. That's terrifying. Yes. So basically the civil police of the state of Minas Gerais found that the victims, um, that many of the victims, especially the ones that had fallen ill from the same neighborhood, um, had been attending festivities in, in their neighborhood um, and had consumed a specific label of backer beer. Um, so the bottles that hadn't been used during the festivities were given by the families of the victims and it was found that the bottles were intact. There were no signs of like them being tampered with. So it wasn't that like somebody was had purposely poisoned. Right. Um, and so because there had been no tampering, the police then went to the brewery to test for DEG. Um, they ended up finding it in a beer vat or water tank uh, used by Backer Brewery and in eight different beer, like the bottles for eight different beer labels that were sold by Backer. Wow. Including the one that had been sold uh, or had been consumed at the festivities in this neighborhood. So, of course, as a result of this, all products manufactured by the brewery, um, I don't know if I said that this occurred at the beginning of 2020, but it occurred at the beginning of 2020, like January, December, end of December, beginning of January 2020. Um, so anything that had been produced from October 2019 and on were recalled and production in the brewery was suspended. Uh, a total of 139,000 liters of bottled beer and 8,480 liters of draft beer were seized. Uh, the brewery's tanks and other production equipment were sealed. Um, Backer, for its part, said that they didn't use DEG in their production process. Uh, they used a less toxic related chemical called monoethylene glycol, um, or MEG. And chemistry technicians did say to the press that MEG could turn into DEG from a chemical reaction. Uh, they said one of the suspicions is that there was an MEG leak. When in contact with the acidic environment of the beer, the substance may have turned into DEG. So the Ministry of Ar Ar Agriculture, the Ministry of Agriculture, soon began to investigate um, and they were walk working off of three hypotheses. One was sabotage, one was leakage, uh, and the other was misuse of the related chemical known as monoethylene glycol. So kind of similar to the theory that these chemists were saying that maybe like 
it was that, but it converted into DDG. So they investigated and then they released a statement um, about their own analysis. Um, and they said that they did, in fact, find the toxic molecules in the water tank used by the brewery, um, rendering the contamination, quote, systemic, or in other words, present in the backer production process. They also said the contamination was exceptional. So it was, it was pretty bad. Wow. That's uh, terrifying to think that, like, especially if they didn't know and then they, like, made all this beer and sold it. And... Yeah. And it was, like, an upscale brewery, right? So you're, you're not even, like, thinking, like, oh, I'm drinking Bud Light. Like, it would be, like, a beer that you might drink, right? Because right. you like craft beer. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's like, scared. Not that Budweiser would have an issue. You know what I'm <laughs> but I'm just saying, like, you think you're paying extra for this, like, fancy beer. Right. And the bottles are sealed and not tampered with. It, right. It's kind of scary. Um... So they analyzed more than 700 samples from the brewery and found contamination in 53 bath batches that were produced between July 2019 and January 2020. So after this discovery, the Brazilian Health Regulatory Agency banned all backer beers across the country with an expiration date from August 2020 onwards, uh, and their production site was closed, causing the company to lay off 50 people. And I think it said in a hundred, like 150 other people were kind of put on like, um, what's that word where you're not fired, but you're like not making money. I can't remember I know what you're talking about. But it happened a lot during COVID actually. Yeah. Um, so the brewery did fully cooperate with the investigation and they conducted their own internal investigation as well. Um, and I do want to give a little bit of background. Backer is a family owned brewery um, and they were founded in 1999. And it was actually registered in the notary's office as the first craft brewery in Minas Gerais, which is like a area of Brazil. Um, so, and they had actually won a ton of international prizes. They were widely available in Brazil. So again, this was like a brand that people trusted and was very highly regarded. Right. And even though in my story I talked about cachaça, uh -huh. if you do research, well, it is the national drink of Brazil. Yeah. Brazilians actually drink far more beer yeah. than cachaça in the country. So, like, if it's a well-known brewery... That has, like, awards. Awards. And, yeah. Like, it was... You probably see it at every party and every... Right. You know, like, a household that drinks craft beer probably had one of these batches. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so... The investigations, uh, as the investigation investigations occurred, like I said, Backer was very, like, compliant. At first, I think they were trying to say that it was a lie and it wasn't true, but obviously as evidence came out, they were, they complied, um, and they posted a statement on their website saying, at this moment, Backer remains focused on patients and their families. The company will provide the necessary support even before any conclusions about the episode any conclusions about the episode they need. The brewery informs that it continues to collaborate without restrictions with the investigations. The company continues to investigate internally what could have happened with a batch of beer identified by the police. And they added that it request that it requested an independent investigation and that it awaited results. Um, and then they reiterated that the production process only used monoethylene glycol not DEG. 
So 11 people linked to Backer were actually indicted as part of the investigation. So the brewery owners, employees um, were all indicted for manslaughter or unintentional bodily harm and food contamination. Ultimately, however, the investigat investigators discovered, um, as you alluded to, that it was accidental. You know, you were saying, like, even if it was accidental, and it, and it was. Right. It's what they eventually found. Um, deliberate contamination was ruled out. So police did find a leak in the tank that had the contamination. Um, they said that it started in September of 2019, and... As I said, Backer claims that they only used monoethylene glycol, but it turned out that a supplier in Sao Paulo was believed to have added diethylene to the monoethylene glycol. So, like, they were using DEG, they just didn't know no, they, they were. were. It. Yeah. That's, that sounds like that guy's got a lawsuit coming. Yeah. Um, so... Again, this tank, which was one of 70 tanks, had a manufacturing defect. Um, it was a new tank, but there was a small hole, approximately two millimeters, that allowed the coolant liquid circulating in the external system to mix with the drink inside the container, which led to the contamination. So they didn't realize that this tiny hole was letting this coolant with a organic compound that they didn't even know was in it leak into it's beer. like the worst series of unfortunate events. Yeah, exactly. Um, and led to obviously horrible uh, ramifications. Yes. Um, so the final report confirms that Backer didn't buy DEG, but MEG, um, and that it was changed by a supplier who delivered the adulterated product to Backer. Um, but they said that this didn't change the case since MEG would have caused similar uh, damage to the health of consumers once it was mixed into the beer. Um, so they still, like, would have had a problem, even though, again, it wasn't intentional because there was, like, a small hole. But regardless of what the chemical was, there still would have been illness and possibly death. Because, um, again, those chemists said that when it mixed with the beer, it could have changed. Turned. That feels like a lot of, like, when you think about, like, a court case and who can be found guilty, you've got to have, like, evidence that that person intentionally did it. Yeah. Right? Like, they right, intentionally right. bought DEG, or they knew there was a leak, or they mm -hmm. bottled it and sold it even after testing it, knowing it was contaminated. Right. Which it doesn't sound like the brewery no. did any of that. No, they they didn't. It, it really was an accident, and it just really, you know, unfortunately led to death. Okay, I need to know more. Um, so out of the 11 people that were indicted, seven people were held responsible for a negligent crime with no intention to kill, uh, for the crime of neg negligence and technical malpractice. Um, another four people were also charged with other crimes, but I couldn't find what crimes because a lot of these articles were in Portuguese. <laughs> so you got to bear with me. Um, the owners of Backer, however, didn't answer for manslaughter because according to a delegate um, 
that was working on the case, they said that they did not have the technical knowledge to prevent the leak. Which makes sense. I think a lot of, like, brewery owners aren't necessarily the brewmaster. Right, exactly. And they probably aren't even there day-to-day to, like, see the equipment or see... It sounds like yeah. a pretty large brewery, 70 right. tanks. Like, I like in my head at first when you were saying, like, family-owned craft brewery, mm-hmm. like... I'm thinking about some of the ones here in New York, and you go on those tours, and they've got three giant tanks. Like, 70 tanks, that's a pretty decent-sized brewery. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. The owners are not the head brewmasters there every day. Right. So. Okay. So, the Ministry of Agriculture wrote that, quote, the report confirms the occurrence of contamination since January 2019, ruling out the possibility of this being an isolated event in the brewery's production history. The tax investigations indicated that the Backer Brewery adopted irresponsible practices by deliberately using top toxic coolants in its establishment, using them to the detriment of non-toxic alternatives such as propylene glycol and potable ethylene alcohol. So many science words. Contamination <laughs> by MEG and DEG is not restricted to batches that pass through the GB10 tank, but also occurs in beers brewed prior to the installation of this tank in the brewery. The company also had several flaws and gaps in the internal control and management systems, systems presenting incomplete information in production reports and inefficient track traceability controls. So basically, they ended up finding that it wasn't just that one tank, I guess, that, again... Portuguese articles, so I did my best, guys. But um, it seems like they found that there were other issues uh, at the brewery. Um, But again, the owners, I guess, weren't responsible for them. It was more like the day-to-day workers. Um, So after these findings were released, Backer themselves did release a statement saying that the findings confirmed what they already said, that it was an accident with no intention of causing harm. Um, But this, of course, didn't exempt its responsibility. They apologized to everyone and especially to the victims and their families. Um, And this might, again, be because of the, you know, the articles being in another language, but it also might be because, you know, sometimes in these court cases, when things are settled privately, you can't find, like, numbers. so I'm a little unclear on whether the victims and their family received money from backers. Um, it seems like for at least a while they didn't because backers said that its assets were blocked by a court order and that it would be up to the judge to decide who received compensation after each case was evaluated. Um, I'm sure that they did receive some kind of restitution. I just you know don't know how much. Again, it might have been done privately. Um, but if anyone knows, feel free to, to let us know. Um, as I said, because of all of this, Backer was shut down. However, very recently, on April 8th of 2022, wow. uh, Backer announced the return of beer production after receiving approval from the Ministry of Agriculture, uh, Livestock and Supply, the mun- Municipality of Belo Hor- Horizonte, which I think is the area that they're in, and I'm sorry if I said that wrong, Uh, the fire department and the municipal environment department, which attested to the safety of the production process. 
Uh, they said the company complied with the requirements to guarantee the safety of products, including the conditions of fermentation tanks and equipment that will be used. Uh, they also replaced the refrigerant fluid in the process with a hyd hydroalcoholic solution that contains water and alcohol. Um, and they actually began producing beer in November of last year um, and had the batches like individually tested to make sure that they were all safe um, by these different government agencies, um, you know, to prove that their beer was safe and that they were following the rules. And uh, they are back up and running now, which is why I feel like they must have paid money to the families. Like, right. I feel like there would have been like a revolt if they never had and they were trying to sell beer again. Right. Two things. Yes. I remember the word from earlier, furlough. Yes. Thank you. That, yes. <laughs> That's the word of when workers are like laid off with no money. Or, or like, they like promise. still have a job, but they aren't yeah. paid or whatever. Yeah. And so I'm sure someone was yelling at us. Yeah. But it did pop in my head at some point in your story. And two, I don't, I mean, obviously I know it's tested, but like I feel like it would be hard to pick up a, one of those beers and trust it. I know. I know. Even though it was like a complete accident and like all of their, you know, equipment has has been evaluated by all these agencies. So it's probably safer to drink it now than it ever Agreed. has been because they had so much testing done. But I'm sure like people especially that knew people that got sick from these beers are going to have a hard time. Their marketing team is going to have to come up with some yeah, really good PR. For sure. For sure. Um, so I did use a few different sources. Um, I told Laura before we recorded, I did use quite a bit of Wikipedia because it was, it was the like Brazilian Wikipedia, like the, the address was, and I had to trans hit translate to English from, um, Portuguese, uh, but it was much easier to do that than to try to figure out what all these other articles said. So I did use Wikipedia. Um, I did use two articles from Reuters. Uh, so there was one called Brazil Police Investigate Craft Brewer After Two Poison Deaths. Another one was Brazil Reports Third Death from Suspected Poison Craft Beer. Um, How many people died in total? Ten. Ten deaths. Yeah. And like 42 people total, I think, were made sick. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, there were two articles from foodandsafetynews.com. Uh, big backer told to recall beer linked to poisoning in Brazil. And police find deadly backer beer con contamination was an accident. Um, and then the last article I used was from stantonfoods.com called backer given approval to restart beer sell sales after deadly outbreak. Wow. Yeah. And uh, I, one of the Wikipedia articles I went to was for um, diethylene glycol, and there was a huge list of like accidental poisonings from like around the world. Like this was just one of them, and I was like, "That's terrifying!" Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, if it is a part of a cooling process, you have to think there are breweries around the world using it. They're also probably, like, uh, yeah. ice cream factories, frozen food companies, like, all these places that cool their food. Like, if you think, like, food that's cooked and then right. frozen, 
for you to reheat has like that cool down process. Mm-hmm. So like it could contaminate all kinds of foods. Yeah. It's terrifying. Yeah. And yeah. also don't drink antifreeze. Obviously. Don't drink antifreeze. <laughs> <laughs> Words to live by. <laughs> Okay, so this season, instead of talking about bars of the week in our local area, we're going to feature a cocktail from the country that we're talking about. Um, And we're not going to go into tons of detail right now during the outro, but we are going to post the recipes on our social media. So... In case you were wondering what we're going to post this week, we are going to do the Caparina. It is the (laughs) national cocktail of Brazil. Uh, It is delicious and so easy to make. You probably have most of the ingredients except cachaça at home. (laughs) So you'll have to make a trip to the, the store. But it's an easy, perfect going into summer cocktail and we hope you'll follow along with the recipe we post on instagram you can find us at a tap on the wrist and again you can send us any emails for country ideas or story ideas at tap on the wrist podcast at gmail.com and we will report back hopefully we'll be able to have one of these cocktails at our brazilian dinner adventure uh, and let you know what we think about them so stay tuned next week for that And until then, cheers. cheers.